Well, now here it is. I am sitting on my duff after I have had this fantastic fried sole in butter, butter, Moliere, Moliere, Rimbo, Rambo, Rimboud, Rimboud. <laughs> so, <laughs> has it ever occurred to you that the French don't even know how to pronounce their own language? I mean, it's not. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty silly, you know. You stop to think of it. It's like none of them know how to spell. So anyway, I'm sitting over there in Le Marmiton, and I'm talking to this guy from the Cudner Agency, and he is telling me how much he loves me, and I'm telling him how much I love him, and we're talking away there, and we're drinking Cointreau. Oh yes, this is expensive Countsville all the way down the Linesville. So we're sitting there, you know, piling it on, and after about three and a half hours of this, we go reeling out into the east side. And we hand clasp firmly, and he says the old contract to Reno is going to be in the mail, and uh, it's in the bag. And I came back, and I'm sitting here at my desk, and I begin to wonder whether or not he loved me because we were at Le Marmiton, and I loved him because there was Contreau there, or was it Quantro? Was that stuff? <laughs> You could run an outboard motor for four weeks on one fifth of this stuff. So I mean, it's got calories, baby. I mean, which is another word for octane. And so I'm sitting there, and I begin to wonder whether or not, if we removed all of that jazz, if we could ever get together, me and this guy. Which immediately leads me to you. If I threw your record player down the air shaft, I love you. And if I threw out this Japanese couch and those Danish salad bowls, blah 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 blah, blah and, and that Gothic TV set, sent it home to mother. And if I made, uh, let's say, uh, let's say, if I made, uh, let's say, if I cut paper dolls out of the wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. In other words, clean this whole place out, move you down into a cellar somewhere. We sat around on packing cases. Would you dig me like you dig me now? Would you do it? <laughs> you see why I say this is a hypothetical, pertinent question. <laughs> no, I'm being serious, really, you know. I mean, not really, actually. Because if you ever answered, I would explode. If you ever got honest with me, there would—I mean, where would we go from there? Because <laughs> nobody ever really wants the answers, you know. Least of all, guess who? <laughs> I mean, you know, just just for kicks. I'm just. Oh no! Come on now. Look. Look, first of all, I am once again putting you on, because I know, I mean, really, I know what your answer is. You don't even have to say it. Don't say it. I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what, you know, just make a talk. I think people just sit around and talk and never really say anything, and that's all I'm doing. 
How would you like me to sing with Dave Brubeck now? I mean, I am getting fed up to hear with Thelonious Monk and Jerry Mulligan. I don't care whether your mother gave you this record or not. The old lady has her taste, you know where. She is strictly Wyatt Earpsville. Hey, I got an idea. How would you like me to go down and get three cream soda no-cals? Three. And we will get all no-caled up. <laughs> How about it, huh? You know, there's nothing better than a little cream soda no-cal with just a slight little finger of anisette. <laughs> of course, that kills the whole idea of no-cal. But woo-hoo-hoo! Wow! I will be back in five. Just in time to make the station break around here, baby. explain it except that somehow I feel as though they hadn't invented tomorrows. It is this this <laughs> it can be a very dangerous thing, you know. Because this is the way all of man has always lived. So speaking of the dangerous things, this is W O R A M and F M New York. And we will be here until one o'clock in the morning. I don't know I don't know how to uh of course, of course, again, you know, when you when you walk along Park Avenue and you look up and you see all these erector set buildings that they're putting up on every corner, made out of glass and aluminum, aluminum, aluminium, 
What is it they say up in Canada? Aluminium. <laughs> Aluminium. Aluminum. And it took me about, I, I, I say, at least four grades to learn to say aluminum properly, improperly. Aluminum. Aluminum. Aluminium. Laboratory. Uh, you know, I, just, I, like to, I like to throw in a little air here and there. Neither. <laughs> Laboratory. Neither. <laughs> Mr. Shepard, you certainly speak very well. Very well. Very well. One can tell a person breathing immediately. Speaks well, you know. <laughs> Shepard, you are an, a completely inconsolable ham. No question about it. Of course, Mr. Shepard, you speak very well. Can you imagine a man made entirely of jowls? Just jowls all over, hanging from his knees. Speak very well. Very well. Excuse me, I don't know. It's just well, this is like tomorrow hasn't been invented. Like we're not going to make it until 8 a.m. None of us are going to be here. Hey, listen, I want to ask you a question. Of course, this is liable to be a very personal one. But if, if 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 I were to come up to you and sneak, you know, I'm saying, listen. Whenever I whisper on the air, I get about four or five letters. They're the most touching letters, in a way, from hard of hearing ladies. They do say, Mister Shepherd, we'd like to tell you that, that that many of us don't hear what you say when you whisper, and I have a suspicion that that's when you really say it. It's right, madam. <laughs> Didn't get that, did you, baby? <laughs> By George, you know. Speaking of, of uh, touching letters, I didn't know what to do. I got a I got a very very strange, sad little touching note from a guy who said he's a listener, and he came right out and said it. He says, all of a sudden, I had this wild thing happen to me, and I am now in a nervous, wild, nervous state, and I'm in a mental hospital. This is a, a very, somehow a very disturbing letter. And he said, he said, and he went right on. He didn't ask for any, any uh, sympathy or anything like this. He said, here I am. He said, but I don't have a radio. And he says, these aides around here insist on me sleeping from 10.30 until X hours in the morning. He says, and I have this crummy, rotten little transistor radio that I hide under my bed. And it's an old transistor radio. And I get nothing but static. How can I get what 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 can I do? I don't know, buddy. It's problems just like that that got you where you are. I mean, because we're all being bugged in one way or another, you know? We all all are, all are. It's the it's the it's the it's it's the growth, you know, all this stuff going on everywhere. It's it's the it's the giant mushroom of, of civilization and mankind and all the rest of it. All the things, by the way, which we created to help us out. They have kind of taken over now. I mean, the, the air conditioning is, is is beginning to move in. Do you know that you can get an air-conditioned grave now? There's a fantastic ad that appeared the other day. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Oh, Shepard wouldn't josh you. Not a bit of it. I am not, you know. Because, you know, the intriguing thing about it is that I have come to notice that hardly anybody sees these things. They'll, they'll read them in the New York Times. They go right on. And then I come out and say, them. I say, what is he saying? I said, come on, what's this clown? No, 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 no. 
I'm telling you this, that, that I read an article by an air conditioning man, a whole business about air conditioning, seen all the way down at the bottom, you can now get an air-conditioned crypt, an air-conditioned grave. And it's a lovable, livable room temperature, it says. Very livable temperature. I kind of like that idea. <laughs> this is a fact Rooney. There's not going to be any dead American who has to leave his air temp anymore. I mean, you can take it with you. I'll cut it out now. Yeah, this is an old, outmoded idea. You can take it with you. And you know that, that, they, that they're working on a, a thing, the credit card people are working on, I think, so that you can honestly take your card with you. And it will be honored. Both places. Which I think kind of is a, a real selling point. I mean, not one of those phony selling points, because I want security. Daddy, security. Have you ever, have you ever gotten really tired of not making it? Seriously, is there anybody out there who to himself never has said, when is it going to happen? When am I going to really hit it? You realize, of course, that the natives of the Solomon Islands have built a whole religion on this. This is the great mystery ship that's going to appear one day. And it's going to be filled with nothing but everything. And they sit on the beach hour after hour, some of them, and just sit there and wait for the ship to come in. Well, Solomon Islanders can get away with it. I mean, literally sitting on the beach watching with the glass, you know, looking out there and once in a while. One guy says, what's that thing moving out there on the, just to the left of the big rock? It's a whale, I think. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Crying out loud. That's the third one this week. And they just sit, you know. I'm not kidding you. This is a fact. This is the big ship complex. Do you know what happened once, of course, is that the U.S. government finally had to send them one. And, and they did, you know. They decided, well, well, we'll take them off the hook. These guys have been, they, they, they've had this fantastic famine. They've, they haven't done anything for a long time. Just sit on the beach and wait. And so they did send this ship. Did you know that? They sent a ship out there. The ship arrived, and everybody says, oh, here it is. It's finally here. And they all rushed down, and they started to unload all the Paps beer. And they, you know, they were bringing them John paper, everything. You know, they were bringing it all out there. And they, when it was all piled up on the beach, it looked so little. I mean, it really did. It looked really little compared to the dream that they said, oh, this is not the real one. And so the guys with the ship, they brought this ship all painted white. They said, yeah, this is the big ship. This is the one. And the natives says, oh, no, you're not putting me on. No, no. And so they ate their Mary Janes, and they sat around, and they chewed their mail pouch that they gave them. And they started, and then, you know what they did then? Then they quit doing everything, because they had had a sign that ships were possible. A little nothing ship had arrived, but in a week or two, or maybe a year, or an eon or so, the big one would come, and they weren't going to miss it. So then they had it in spades. The government had a gigantic ship complex. <laughs> it's like, you know, you give anybody an inch. I mean, they're ready to swing, man. You give, you give one guy 30 seconds on the Ed Sullivan Show, and he, is, he will go to his grave burnt up that he wasn't given four hours, a hundred hours, a million hours. You know? It's just a fact of nature. Is there anyone out there with soul so dead who never to himself has said, I am getting tired of this. When am I going to make it? I mean, really make it? Is there anybody out there who honestly can stand up and say to me, Shepherd, I have made it? I will then point out a dead man. 
<laughs> By the way, I'm using an old, ancient, antique system, uh, technique of the evangelists who will say, Is there anyone out here who can stand up and say to me, I am a good man? One person in this congregation stand up and say that I am a good man. If such a man stands up before me, I will point out a fool. I will point out a sinner. Well, then everybody, what can they do? I mean, you just sit there and sweat. What are you going to do? Now, now that we have arrived at this millennium, is there anyone out there who can stand up and say to me, I am a good man? Oh, no, no, excuse me, erase that. No, no, I'm not interested in the good man. That, that causes me to itch immediately. <laughs> Is there anyone out here who can call me up and say I have made it? I mean, because actually, good is paralleled in our time with making it. You know that, don't you? That's right. And I'm not talking particularly of D-E-A-U-X. Do, bucks or rooney, baby. Money. Money! What makes the world go round Money. Why, they got a big sign there in New York. Big sign. Up on top of one of them buildings that says M-O-N-Y. What is that spell? Money. Okay. Does one need any more proof of the pudding? I remember one day, I am standing in the kitchen. I have just finished a quarter-pound Baby Ruth candy bar. Baby Ruth candy bars in those days were so big that they came with a shoulder holster. You carried them slung over your back. Well, I had come home carrying two Baby Ruth candy bars and a Butterfinger, so of course I was loaded down. My muscles were aching. And I had just put away one Baby Ruth candy bar. My stomach muscles were distended. It was chocolate from my neck all the way up to my up to my earlobes and all the way down to my navel. I'm standing there next to the kitchen table. My mother is over there bending over the sink, working over the strainer. An apple core had gotten stuck again. And she was working away there with her Brillo pad, wearing her orange chenille bathrobe. But the egg clotted onto the pals. Her hair was up in curlers. She was ready for the toxin to sound. I remember the, the tilt of her head. If you can look at a person and you can see the tilt of that person, the way they hold their head, the way they hold their shoulder, you are seeing that person. Forget what the eyes look like. Forget it. And I can see her kind of vaguely hunched, a little tilted to the left, and looking out over that dark backyard. Mr. Bruner's backyard was eternally dark and crisscrossed with innumerable tired old wash lines. Held up, do they still have wash poles? Held up with wooden wash poles with notches on the end. And Bruner is trying to work his way through that spider web. It is Saturday night, he has been hitting the jug. He's working his way through the spider web, and suddenly Mrs. Bruner appears. Mrs. Bruner, who always looked like a load of cantaloupes, gone slightly bad. In a big burlap sack with her true story under one arm, her true romances under the other, and the smell of Dutch cleanser around her. Mrs. Bruner comes out of the back door, slams the screen with that indignant female slam, and comes waddling down the back steps and starts to untangle Bruner. And as she tries to untangle him, the clothes poles keep flopping down, 
And Bruner is getting sore. He has, he has always made it every Saturday night unassisted. And he is getting more and more entangled. And finally, my mother, after a judicious silence, says, too many cooks spoil the broth. I says, what broth, Mom? She says, Bruner has been hitting the soup again. I says, too many cooks spoil the soup, the broth? She says, nothing, just looks. And you could see this big ball of wax out there. Mrs. Bruner, Mr. Bruner, and the clothes poles. Joined shortly thereafter by Junior with yips of joy. He used to love to see his old man come home potted because he liked the way he walked then. He walked sideways and backwards at the same time and would occasionally roll like a beach ball. In fact, I remember one day, Junior Bruner came banging on the back door and says, let's watch my old man. He's going to try to go down to Mattingly's. He's going to buy himself a box of cut plug. And we followed him for 14 blocks. Mattingly's was only a block and a half away. He was crisscrossing and tacking into the wind. It was a problem of navigation and also keel dragging. Difficult problem. He was also dragging his anchor against the wind. Do you know that Mr. Bruner lived an entire life with Hurricane Donna approaching him from all sides? No matter where he was. And so I'm standing there and my mother is looking out. And she says, too many cooks spoil the broth. I says, Ma, what do you mean? She says, you'll find out one day. Too many cooks spoil the broth. And with that, she goes back to that strainer with her Brillo pad going, with the sink dripping, and I immediately forgot about it and went to work on my Butterfinger candy bar. I was preparing. It was an hors d'oeuvre for tonight's course of hash and red cabbage. Just a way of working. Just a way of working and a way of being. Alan Sterling looked around the cellar in which he lay. It was brick paved. Its roof was formed by half an arch. There was a very stout-looking door in the corner opposite that in which he found himself. An unshaded electric bulb hung on a piece of flexible cable from the roof. He could trace the cable down the sloping brickwork to a roughly hollowed gap through which it disappeared. There was no furniture of any kind in the cellar. But the place was singularly hot, and it seemed to be informed by a ceaseless buzzing, which, however, presently he identified with his own skull. He had an agonizing headache. Raising his hand, he found a great lump immediately above his left ear. The first idea which flashed through his bemused mind was a message of thanksgiving. He, he must have had a very narrow escape from death. And then came the memories, chaotic, torturing. He had had Florette in his arms, and then something had happened. What had happened? What? It was beyond him. He could recall nothing but the fact that she had screamed unnaturally, that he had struggled with her, and then there was a gap. And now, where was this place in which he found himself? Where had he been when he had struggled with Florette? He clutched his throbbing skull, trying to force thought. Memories began to return to him in fragments, bits and pieces. And then finally came the complete story. He tried to stand up. The effort was too much for his strength. He dropped back again upon the stone pavement. By God, he had a devil of a whack. Gingerly, he touched the wall. To feel, feel. Where am I? 
And then he moved his hand up to the swelling on his skull and leaned back against the wall again and tried to think. Florette was alive, thank God for that. But in some way she had changed toward him. He wasn't quite sure about it. But for this he must be thankful that she whom he had thought was dead was alive. The minor difficulty, no doubt, would resolve itself. Nayland Smith, of course, of course. He had been with Nayland Smith. And Gallaho, what had become of Gallaho? Above all, where was he? Where was he now, this very moment? Where was this unfurnished cellar located? He made another attempt to stand up, but it was not, not entirely successful. He was anxious to find out if that heavy door was locked or bolted, but, but the journey, one of just four short steps, was too much for him. He sank down to the floor again, leaning back against the wall. The throbbing in his head was all but unendurable, and the heat, oh, the heat was stifling. Unless, like the buzzing, it was due to internal conditions. Separate now from that buzzing, which he knew to belong to his injured skull, Sterling became aware suddenly of a muted roaring sound. It was somewhere beneath him, beneath his feet. It was uncanny. When first he accepted the reality of his existence, he was dismayed. For what could it be? What could it be? Where could it come from? He was about to make a third attempt to stand up when slowly a heavy door opened and a very tall, gaunt man stood in the opening looking at him. He wore a long white linen coat, linen trousers, and white rubber-soled shoes. The coat, tunic fashion, was buttoned all the way to the neck high, right under the chin. And a lean, sinewy neck supporting a head which might have been that of Dante himself. The brow was even finer than the traditional portraits of Shakespeare, crowned with scanty, neutral-colored hair. The face of the white-clad man was a wonderful face, and might once have been beautiful. It was that of a man of indeterminate age, heavily lined but lighted by a pair of such long, narrow, brilliant green eyes that one's thoughts flashed to Satan. Lucifer, son of the morning, an angel but a fallen angel. His slender hands with long, polished nails were clasped quietly before him. And although no trace of expression crossed that extraordinary face, perhaps a close observer watching the green eyes might have said that the man motionless in the doorway was vaguely surprised. Alan Sterling succeeded in his third attempt to stand up. He was very unsteady, but by means of supporting himself against the wall with his left hand, he succeeded in standing upright, and so standing... He faced Dr. Fu Manchu. The fact that you are alive... The words came sibilantly from thin lips which scarcely seemed to move. Surprises me. Sterling stared at the speaker. Every instinct in his mind, his body, his soul prompted, kill him, kill him. But Sterling knew something of Dr. Fu Manchu. And he knew that he must temporize. I am surprised, too, he said. His voice shook, and he hated his weakness. The green eyes watched him hypnotically. Sterling, leaning against the wall, wrenched his gaze away. It was a physical effort. It is not my custom, the harsh voice continued, to employ coarse methods. You were, to put it bluntly, bludgeoned in Rowan House. Your constitution, Alan Sterling, must resemble that of a weasel. 
I had intended to incinerate your body. I am not displeased to find that life survives. Nor am I, said Sterling, calculating his chances of a swift spring and a blow over the heart of this, this fiend whom he knew to be of incalculable age. And then a hook to that angular jaw, and a way to freedom would be open. With the instinct of a boxer, he had been watching the green eyes whilst these thoughts had flashed through his mind. And now he said, You could not strike me over the heart. Suddenly, said Dr. Fumancho, You could not strike me over the heart. I am trained in more subtle arts than the crudities of boxing have ever appreciated. As to your second blow, aimed, I believe, at my jaw, this would not occur. You would be dead. For a moment, a long, heavy moment, Alan Sterling hesitated. In fact, until the uncanny quality of these words had penetrated to his brain, and then he realized, and others long before him had realized eternally, that Dr. Fu Manchu had been reading his thoughts perfectly. He stood quite still. While he was recovering from the effects of the assault which had terminated his memories of Rowan House, and now was capable of standing unsupported, however shakily. There is a monastery in Tibet. It is called Rashe Kuran. Those who have studied under the masters of Rashe Kuran have nothing to fear from Western violence. Forget your projects. Rejoice only that you live. If you value your life. It seemed suddenly that Alan Sterling was enveloped by an uncanny intelligence that seeped through the very clothing he wore. It was as though suddenly he blacked out. Darkness, great howling fiends and darkness surrounded him. And within a Thrice a note of a sounding toxin, he found himself standing on a wooden platform, clutching a rusty iron rail. He now knew where he was, and looking down upon a scene which reminded him of nothing so much as an illustration of Dante's Inferno itself. Dim figures, inhuman, strangely muffled like animated Egyptian mummies, moved far below. Sometimes they were revealed when the door of some kind of furnace was opened to disappear again like phantom forms of a nightmare when the door was closed and a stifling, stifling, wretched heat rose from the pit. The simile of a mummy has occurred to you, said the voice of Dr. Fu Manchu out of the darkness, that strange voice which stressed gutturals and lent sibilance of quality rarely heard in the voice of an English speaker. You are anxious to find out the facts. You are ignorant of ancient Egyptian ritual or other images would occur to you, Sterling. In point of fact, these workers are protected against the poisonous fumes generated at certain points in the experiment now taking place below and before your very eyes. These gases do not reach us here. They are consumed by a simple process and dispersed by means of a ventilation staff. They continue to descend. You have no other choice.
which Neyland had said long, long ago. He was quite unable to recall when he came to us. He could hear the voice of over a hill which we have looked at every morning for months together on the roof of a building in which we walk daily there are secret things which we don't even expect Dr. Fu Manchu has made it his business to seek out these secret things and here was that theory demonstrated he was in a trap he hadn't the remotest idea of where he was this ghastly place might be anywhere within a 50 mile radius of the house in Surrey he must wait for a suitable opening he must try to plan ahead. He went on down the steps. The heat grew greater and greater. Dr. Fu Manchu followed him. Stop! Stop! The harsh voice directed, and Sterling stopped. One thing there was which gave him power to control his emotion, which gave him strength to temporize, patience to wait. Florette was alive. She was alive. Some wizardry of this Chinese physician had, had perverted her outlook. He, Sterling, had seen such cases before in households belonging to Dr. Fu Manchu. The man's knowledge was stupendous. He could play upon the strongest personality as a musician plays upon an instrument in an orchestra. You will presently observe something phenomenal, the high voice continued. Something which has not occurred in several centuries the mating of the elements. At the moment of transmutation, the fumes to which I have referred escape to a certain extent from the furnace. Looking down darkness. My facilities here are limited, and I am using primitive methods. I am cut off from my once great resources to a certain extent by the activities of your friend, Nayland Smith, he stressed this word, speaking it on a very high note. Sir Nathan Smith. But it is possible to light a fire by rubbing two pieces of wood together. And Dr. Fu Manchu was about to do that. He pointed down into the fiery hell of the seething cauldron below. Note the fires of union. The heat of things as they descended nearer and nearer was becoming almost undurable. But now came a loud and vicious crack, the clang of metal, and the door was suddenly thrown open. A blaze of light from the white hot fire poured across the floor below. Mummy white figures moved in it to resemble, to resemble ancient woodcuts of antique obscenities. They approached that miniature hell, now extending instruments, resembling long, narrow, carved tongs. From the white heat of the furnace, they grabbed what looked like a ball of light and lowered it to the floor. The furnace doors were closed again by two more mummy-like figures which appeared out of the shadows. The scene then became more and more fantastic. The incandescent globe was suddenly shattered. Where it had been, Sterling saw a number of objects resembling streaks of molten metal. Metal, metal that and crept along the fire, and grew dim and more dim. This work, said Dr. Fumet, will engage your attention. Future, you have grossly interfered with my plans of the past, and I might justly and perhaps wisely kill you. Unfortunately, I am short of labor at the moment, and you are a physically strong man. The 
you are going to make me work down in that hell? I fear it must be so. Continue to the base of the stairs immediately. And Sterling, descending, found himself at the bottom of the huge black shaft. The furnace was closed. The inferno dimly lighted. Not one of the mummy-wrapped figures was to be seen but the heat. Oh, the heat. The tunnel sloped away on his right. Far down at a solitary lantern appeared, as if to indicate its clammy extent. For, as he could see, this tunnel dripped with moisture, and its floor was flooded in places. A grateful coolness was perceptible at the entrance to this unwholesome-looking burrow. You will observe... That the temperature is lower here than on the stairs. We are actually 120 feet below the surface. We will return. The authority and Dr. Fumanchu's orders and quality which created awe without making for resentment. Sterling had experienced in the past this imposition of this thing's gigantic will. The power of Dr. Fumanchu's commands lay in his acceptance of the fact that they could not, nor would they ever be, seriously questioned. It may interest you to learn that human flesh is excellent fuel in relation to this particular experiment. Sterling made no reply. The implication was one he had not cared to dwell upon. He remembered that Dr. Fu Manchu had said, I had intended to incarcerate your body and to finally incinerate it. These stairs with their rusty handrails seemed all but interminable. Descent had been bad enough, but this return journey followed on the terrible spectacle below was worse. Vague gleams from the pit fitfully lighted the darkness, and from behind, Dr. Fu Manchu directed a light upon the crude wooden steps. Suddenly, stop! The imperious voice directed. There came a sound of rapping on the door, that of a bolt shot free, a faint creeping. Step back a pace, lower your head and go in! Suddenly, Alan Sterling began to lose consciousness. Suddenly, a dark green terribly insinuating intellectual fog began to envelop his body, his mind, his soul, his veritable innermost being. And he knew, he knew, he knew that this time there was no returning. He had begun to merge interminably, slowly. He had begun to merge with the mind of Dr. Fu Manchu himself. He had begun to merge not only with this fiend's mind, but what his devilishly uncanny will. Alan Sterling knew that he had become Dr. Fu Manchu himself. Speaking of fiendish infernos, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M New York. The point being here, don't for one minute think you have any trouble, Jack. Don't. Did you, did you, did you, all, anywhere along the line, did you have feelings that somehow this was familiar? That you were looking your boss right in the eye? <laughs> As Russ Dunbar put it, Russ had this kitten, see, about ten minutes ago up here. Just a kitten. And he's trying to peddle this cat. He's trying to get a home for him. And I casually remarked, as is my wont, it's sad, you know, to be 
says, yes, but the cat, you see, has the advantage of not knowing he's being petted. Whereas all of us know very well that we are. By the way, how much are you going for these days? Are you listed on the big board or are you sold over the curb? I mean, if, 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 if life is a gigantic bazaar and there are Fifth Avenue shops where people are sold and bought and there are chic shops on 57th Street where people are sold and bought in this vast bazaar of life, do you have the suspicion that you are for sale in a discount house that deals in nothing but cheap plastic novelties on 6th Avenue? Where is the deal consummated? How much are you bringing? How much are you bringing these days? Are you a fair traded item? Or, or, or are you one of those? Maybe, perhaps, and this is the saddest thought of all, could it be very well that you are the second feature on a, on a tie-in sale? Could that be possible? I mean, just a suggestion. I don't wish to imply anything here. You know, I'm watching, I'm watching the ball game today, and the reason I watch ball games is because it's all there. All you got to do is have the eye to look for it. It's all there. And this ball player gets up, you know, and he's tapping his bat on the, on the old plate, you know. He's up there and flexing his muscles. And before he walks up, he's on the on-deck circle, you know, and he's got, he's got the leaded bat and he's a couple of big old fungos and he's swinging them there and he's moving his shoulders back and forth and he's tugging at his hat. And finally he gets up there and he begins to dig in. And he looks down at the pitcher and then there was a strange moment. Something was happening. And the announcer says, oh... Ah, uh, they're sending in a pinch hitter for Charlie. Charlie didn't know it yet. And then you see the manager say something down in the dugout, and you see this other guy come out. Charlie, pretending it didn't mean anything to him, he hits his shoes a little bit, you know, to get the dirt out, walks back into the dugout, and is not seen again that day. Have you ever had a sneaking suspicion that any minute now you are about to be pulled for a pinch hitter? A 172 swinger in a world of 280 hitters? And that, that, whenever it, that whenever the chips are down, whenever anything really counts, they run the pinch hitter in on you? On the other hand, you know, wouldn't it be great to be standing up there and they look down at you and they say, that's Charlie down there. And the catcher and the pitcher exchange, exchange signals and they are walking you intentionally. It's too dangerous can't give this guy a chance to hit. That's the final accolade. <laughs> and then you pretend you're mad. You know. Ah, come on! Like, like today, there was a guy who intentionally walked, and, and every every angle of his shoulder betrayed disappointment. He's howling down at the pitcher, and he's howling at the pitcher while they're walking him intentionally, you know, three feet away from the plate they're throwing the ball. Oh, no. He loved every minute of it. He gets down on first base there and he looks tough. You know. <laughs> he kicks the bag, tugs at his hat. Quitting face. <laughs> what a great moment. Believe me. But then on the other hand, folks, there's, 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 the other, there's the other side of it. The other side of it. Can't you just see yourself? This is part of your life, you know. This is it. You're up there at bat. There's a runner on third base. 
is running on first, and you're standing there, and the chips are down, and they've decided to let you swing away. That's when the fear starts to gnaw at your vitals. You get the signal from the third base coach, and he says, swing away, Charlie. Swing away. You are one run behind. The tying run is on third. The lead run is on first. You represent... <laughs> it is now the first half of the ninth inning. And you're digging in. The fear is biting at your very vitals. There are, there are two men on. The pitcher throws in a high, fast, inside ball. You duck away from it. Ball one. <laughs> Maybe I can work him for a walk. Maybe I can chicken a high over for a walk. Pitcher gets his sign, bends down into it. Fingers the rosin bag a bit. Spits with the rubber. Steps in. He winds up. There's the pitch. Inside corner. Strike one. Bryce hmm. playing it cagey, huh? All right. Okay. Your hands are beginning to sweat. The fear is gnawing at your vitals even more. You glance down. The third base coach runs his fingers across his shoulder, pulls at his elbow, flicks at his ear, and that means hit away, Charlie. It's you or nobody. Hit away. Swing away. We're counting on you, boy. Claps his head. Oh, he's going on. Winds up, rears back into its ball too. <laughs> I'm ahead of him. <laughs> I am ahead of him. I am ahead of him. <laughs> and her back in Columbus, 437 feet. <laughs> this guy is no better than that. I'm digging in. The sweat is beginning to subside a little bit now. Pitcher dances down at third. Runners taking a short lead off, dancing back and forth. Oh, Fred's down there. Well, look out, Fred. I'm liable to lace one down that left field line. I'm liable to, I'm liable to just, you know. Stand back. Pitcher winds up. Oh, there he is. There it comes. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Strike two. I no, I should have pulled my swing. What's this guy doing? Pulling a spitter on me. Hey, up! Oh, for crying out loud, this guy's got a spitter. Watch that spitter. They curve three and a half feet. This guy's throwing a spitter. You can trust left-handers dishonest every one of them. That spitter, Rump, watch it. Okay, two and two. Wind up, pinch. Wait it out. Wait it out. Hold back. Hold back, old man. He's wild. Hold back. <laughs> Ball three. Ah, me. <laughs> KG is the next one. <laughs> All right. Two. You'll see who's going to crack. <laughs> now step out of the box. War on nerves here. We'll show this guy who's nervous. <laughs> he steps out of the box. Cracks his shoes. Dirt out of my spikes. Give me the rosin bag. Check the sign. Swing away. Oh, swing away. <laughs> All right. There's a wind up of the pitch. Here it comes. Low and inside. Oh, this is it again. 
talking, man. <laughs> oh. I mean, seriously, have you ever heard a better record than this? I mean, this is really saying it, you know. This is coming right around the bend. This is coming right around the bluff. Coming right around that bed, man. <laughs> Got him in the bluff now. Oh, I mean, isn't that a great record? Do you mind? Now, you understand why I watch baseball? <laughs> Ed, don't throw that away. I mean, this is this is the last of the Sunday night shows. And uh, for those of you who have been following this for some time, I would like to say that beginning next week, beginning next Sunday, I will be on from 12.15 to 4. I just hope a few of you listen. That's all. <laughs> uh, Ed, I, I don't know, you know. Uh, I don't think anybody ever will know. I don't care whether you're Edward R. Murrow or Elsa Maxwell. Uh, nobody will ever really, in the end, know what it's all about. And, and nobody ever will, in the end, know any more than a little tiny, itsy, wee bit of what is all to be known. And in the end, all to be known goes on forever. Until finally no one can know ever any, all that could be known. How can I say this? Except that the firmament stretches on and on and on. We are so small that, uh, that, the, that the thing, I think, is this, this human stuff, this, this, this beautiful, wild, exultant, sad, humorous, and all the other adjectives, and yet at the same time even more, which is in every one of us, we find that is expressed, it can be expressed, and is expressed, 
by hundreds of millions. The, the, the leaves are so many in this this giant this giant blossom. But but none of us can ever possibly comprehend any small petal or leaf. And to listen to these guys. I mean, listen, listen to these guys. I mean, just just listen. It's they're saying one small part of it. And you know, I, 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 the sad part of it is, is that we turn continually deaf ears to ourselves. That that some friendly little old lady will immediately write me and say, "Well, Mr. Shepard, I can't understand that abominable music you play." Because she's talking about the abominable spirit of man. She really is, you know. <laughs> Come on, fellas, we're listening. Listen to that. Listen to that mouth organ. Man, he is pumping that mouth organ. He is playing it and singing it out at the same time. He'll never make the Sullivan show. In fact, he's been dead for 30 years. 30 years ago, he said this. Are you aware of that? No. You know what they were singing about? You want you want to hear what they were singing? You know what he was imitating? He was imitating the sound of a foxhound. Now set it back again there. He was imitating. Now, now listen carefully. They're they're on a run. Listen, come right around and bend. Listen, come right around and bluff. Be the caller. I believe they caught him. Hear that? They're coming around a bend. Got him in the bluff now. Got him, they got him. That's the treeing call. Yeah, they got him. See? Now, don't put it down, madam. See, you didn't know what you were talking about again. When are you going to learn that this was not gibberish? This had a lot more meaning than Montevani playing T for two a thousand times over. Has it ever occurred to you that the barbarians are there at the gates? They are at the gates, but they're all on tape. I mean, you know, or on film. <laughs> you want to hear that again? I mean, it doesn't make any difference. We're all here together. We're all just sitting here scratching. Not that I'm. Sc and by the way, since it's it's uh, since it's now uh, 24, 25 minutes after 11, uh, we might. But oh, another question I'd like to ask: Did anyone bother to check whether anybody was at the Village Voice? Was anyone at the Village Voice tonight? You know, three weeks ago, I gave the phone number talk for 15 minutes about everybody should call the Voice, and 687 guys called, and they got nothing but the nothing signal down there. The Voice had forgotten to come to work. You, you, I can I assure you, this is never going to happen at the Times. <laughs> they all slept in. And believe me, when the Village Voice sleeps in, it sleeps in. So would someone please tell me whether they were there? <laughs> I mean, just give them a call and say, you're there, aren't you? 
Don't ask for a subscription. Just say you were there, weren't you really? It's Watkins 44669. Say, we, we, we're sorry if we bothered you. We just wanted to check. Is everything okay down there? <laughs> Speaking of everything okay, we have with us tonight old Worth Perfume. Our old friends, Worth Perfume. And, and Don Landsman, who... It, it, Worth is this kind of product. Now listen carefully. Don sent me a letter, which I'm going to have to absolutely relay to you. Don was, was looking through one of the catalogs recently. And in this catalog, they had a, the newest of the new toys. Have you seen it? It's a, it's a series of little molds which a kid can use out on the beach to mold sandcastles, prefab sandcastles. Kind of like that idea, prefab sandcastles. That even your sandcastle now has a close resemblance to your neighbor's sandcastle. <laughs> it said it has moats. It has the whole business, keeps and dungeons. And they're all easily made by any child with a minimum of technical assistance. A minimum of technical assistance to make a sandcastle. And so Don sent me this note. He says, where will it all end? He says, I see the days just ahead when they're going to have kite ranges. And there's going to be a whole group of kites up in the air that have been put up there by tall, thin counselors. And it'll say, kids, hold the kite for 15 minutes. Don't have any of that... That sickening business of running around and getting up a sweat and getting the kite up and then having it get stuck in the telephone wires. Hire a kite for 15 minutes. Bring your dad along. Just 25 cents for 15 minutes for a genuine four-and-a-half-foot bird kite. You know, I bet some clown is sitting out there and he's driving along and it's murky. He says, that's not a bad idea. A kite range. Oh, where will it all end? Where will it all end? Well, I don't know, Don. Where will it all end? <laughs> I've often wondered. <laughs> and, and, and we would like to point out that we have with us tonight Worth Perfume. They are back for the fall. And in case you don't know this product, I can only say that Worth is a true aficionado's perfume and in Europe is one of the most important of the select perfumes. And a couple of years ago, in 58, at the Brussels Exposition, they won one of three gold medal awards that were awarded in the luxury product class. Just two other products in the field won these awards. It's a magnificent product. And if you're a perfume type, I would suggest you find out about Worth. You'll find it on sale at all the best perfume counters everywhere. I have no idea, though, however, where it will all end. Well, yes, this is serious. I do have an idea. Or two. I want to do, I, I think this is the first night that we have felt in the air the actual feeling of true fall. I mean, it feels like fall. And there's a certain exhilaration about fall. Do you notice that? And also a certain kind of, oh, a dark-tasting sadness, both at the same time. None of these things do you ever feel about spring. These things you never feel about the onslaught of winter either. Only fall. Have you have you observed that most of the writers who really deal with the inside, the, 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 the terrible furnaces that go on inside of us, you know there are all kinds of writers 
there are carpenters, there are technicians, there are people of... Uh, yes, that's quite true. Russ came in here and handed me a note, and, and, and it reads, somebody said, fall is the springtime of the mind. There is much... That's, that's quite true. Because, uh, you know, the one thing that people miss when they go into the tropics is not winter, but fall. Fall is an exciting time. But like most exciting times, there is also the implied stream of danger. There is the implied... Because nothing will ever excite you unless there is danger involved. Nothing. Life would be dead if there was no danger ever in it. It would not exist. It would be impossible to exist. And so fall is a dangerous, because after all, winter is the dangerous time. And, and fall is the exciting time for the dangerous, for the sense also, really the profound sense that time has passed. This is when you really know it. You see, in spring you have the feeling that time is beginning. Oh, in fall, time has passed. And all the all the writers who have looked into that inferno, that that dark, that dark snarling fire that's inside of all of us, all of them, almost without exception, have written great lengths and great strange, ambiguous things about fall. Thomas Wolfe, for example, in his October World, Wolfe always was hung up on October, and it's just impossible to escape October. And fall has begun. Now, the, the Japanese haiku poets, uh, it's interesting that their poetry follows very distinctly the seasons, one after the other, because all men know them. Even if they live in the tropics, they know fall. Even if they miss it, they know it. In fact, if you miss it, you often know it more so. And so the seasons are there, you know, the summer, the winter, the spring, the fall, the repetition of these seasons. And they knew that this would be true all the time, always, forever, ever, ever, that these things would happen to men. That's why you can read a haiku poet who wrote 200 years ago, and he's saying it. He's saying the same thing. No question about it. It's like riding on a, it's like riding on a Ferris wheel. You know, the Ferris wheel gives you the sense of moving. It gives you the feeling that you are getting somewhere, but you're not. You're just returning always eternally to the same spot, up and down, up and down, back and forth, up and down. And each point you know, on that on that inscribed circle is different from the point before it. And when you arrive at the top, it's not really the top. It's just another point of the circle. It just seems to be the top. You could flip the circle over, and the bottom then becomes the top. It just goes around and is exactly the same. It's the position in space that makes the difference, not the circumference of the circle, that little fine edge. Uh, by the way, is this getting hypothetical for you out there? <laughs> but I will say this, that the haiku poets have dealt with this very much so. And somebody asked me, you know, I had a very wild experience. I just got back from Guantanamo Bay two nights ago. I just, I was chased north by Hurricane Donna. And I was, I was involved there at the naval base, and all these people are kind of isolated, and they're living on the edge of strange kind of unknown, peculiar isolation. And they're all Americans. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting late at maybe 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm sitting 
it, in the in the AOQ, which is a barracks there, and there's a little pool hall there, and everything is dark, and the coke machine is going off and on, and the, the ward boy had left, and everything was quiet. And I'm sitting there in a wicker chair, and a guy comes in wearing a G-suit, and he sits down, and he looks at me, and he says, Are you really Shepherd? I says, Yeah. You're really Shepard. I mean, Shepard from the radio? I says, yeah. And this kid looked like Andy Hardy. It was a cornball scene. And he's, he's wearing this suit, you see. It wasn't a G-suit, actually. It was just a flying coverall with the, with the Mae West under. And he introduced himself. And he says, I'm a listener, man. I says, how did you get here flying this helicopter? He's flying an HRS. So, I don't know. He said, you know, it's a funny thing. Me and this chick out on Long Island, every Sunday night, we used to go along and listen to you. He says, I would go out and I'd see this chick, and he says, I'm going to Adelphi College. And I, I used to listen. And he said, I, I remember more than anything else. I remember, oh, I remember a lot of things. I remember the time you were trying to figure out how Great Neck got its name. And then you told us how Great Neck got its name, about this giant neck that appeared one day, and all the natives saw it that became Great Neck. And, and he says, I remember this. I almost ran into a tree. I says, wow. And we're sitting there for hours, and then finally he says to me, look, one thing I want to ask you, I want to ask you about haiku. He says, do you really dig this? And I says, what do you mean do I dig? Of course. That's why I do it. He says, well, I, I, I'll tell you, he says, I, I couldn't get over hearing this. And I just wanted to make sure you just weren't doing it. I says, what? We, we, distrust every, we distrust ourselves now. And then he began to quote various haiku that I had read about the frog in the pond, a big old boss. He says, I remember that. Boy. And, and I realized how... This stuff really does do it. I'm sitting there in Guantanamo Bay, and that's all this poor guy can think of. He wants to talk all night. And I say, look, you're going to fly at 6 in the morning, and I'm, I'm taking a match flight out of here, and i gotta, I got to go. And so finally he, he, went, he, went back to his, he went back to his room, and I went to mine, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's already, it's already 3. And, and by 4 o'clock, they're shaking me, shining lights in my face, and I go out, and howling winds are whistling across. And I go down to this little airfield, and who is there but this guy, Mike? And he's in his orange suit, and he's got this big orange helmet on, and he's trying to get his HRS started. And, and the next thing I know, I'm in the back of this thing, and we're flying over the choppy waters, and the wind is blowing us back and forth, 35, 40 knots. And he's sitting up in the front driving this mad thing. We finally arrive at Leeward Island. We sit down on this thing, and he gets out of the front of it, and he says, Look, he said, you, you know, when I get back... When I get back, I'm going to call you. I says, fine, good, good. He says, oh, by the way, do you remember the one about the flea? About the flea. The, the one where Isa says, turn over, flea. I'm going to turn over. Be careful. There's going to be an earthquake in a minute. I'm turning over. I says, yeah. He says, wow. And the wind is blowing. He gets back into the HRS, and away he goes, back over the ocean again. So I just want you to know there's a listener down there in the dark. <laughs> You want to hear some fall haiku? Eh? 
What? This is not worth perfume. You want to record it? All right. This is this is fall haiku. You want to hear what the what the Japanese poets said about fall? You see, they didn't really say this about fall. Speaking of poets, this is W O R A M at F M, New York. It's a vast, strange trinity. The WOR is blowing from morning till night. I can't quite figure out what the opus is all about. It does have something to do with an albatross. <laughs> it's hanging around everybody's neck here. Have you ever heard this phrase in your life? Of course, I, if it was up to me, Charlie, things would be different around here, but it isn't up to me. This is the albatross. It's not up to anybody. You get up to the top guy, and he's, well, of course, you know, if it was up to me. I, 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 I'm, my hands are tied. <laughs> so you can understand what we mean by albatry, which is the plural of albatrosses. Uh, now, I'd like to point out that uh, before we go any further, that the Japanese didn't really say anything about fall. They didn't really say anything about winter. They used them as points of reference. Listen to this. Listen to this, please, Eduardo, if you will. You got my thing up there? Well, what's the matter with you two guys? What are you waiting for? You know what happens when we have... What's the matter with you people in there? Heaven's sakes. I'm surprised at you. You don't play Chinese opera music with haiku. Come on now. I might as well get a tap dancer going behind me here. Know that. And incidentally, I'm not a Japophile, but this happens to be about something that is very basic, that has nothing to do with nationality, it has nothing to do with race, creed, religion, it has to do with living. In lantern light, my yellow chrysanthemums lost all their color. morning misted street with white ink an artist brushes a dream of people magnificent that's Busan listen to this morning misted street with white ink an artist brushes a dream of people at Nara temple fresh scented chrysanthemums and ancient images an old tree was felled, echoing, dark echoing thunder in the hills. You see, that's not about a tree at all. Be careful, Daddy. These people speak with forked tongue. An old tree was felled, echoing, dark echoing thunder in the hills. Heat waves to heaven, rising from the ruined hearts of 3,000 homes. That is about the great fire that burned a town. Shiki wrote that one. Heat waves to heaven, 
rising from the ruined hearts of 3,000 homes, chanting at the altar of the inner sanctuary, a cricket priest. Isn't that a lovely little image? Chanting at the altar of the inner sanctuary, a cricket priest. That's Isa, of course. Sad twilight tree. Listen to this one. This is a neat. This is an an image that fits together like a like a jigsaw puzzle. Sad twilight cricket. Yes, I have wasted once again those daylight hours. You see, everybody has the secret sense that he's wasting his life. Sad twilight cricket. Yes, I have wasted once again those daylight hours. A sudden shower, terrified, loud, idiot ducks hightailing home. My melons that you stole last year. This year, I place upon your grave, my son. On these rainy days, that old poet, Ryokan. Wallows in self pity. <laughs> That's a beautiful picture. Ryokan wrote that, by the way. He says, On these rainy days, that old poet Ryokan wallows in self pity. He looks out at the rain. I mean, that was written about 150 years ago, you know. And I have seen many a guy standing at the corner of 47th and Madison looking out of a window at the rain coming down on the tops of Madison Avenue buses wallowing in self-pity. Pitiful, fearful. These poor scarecrows look like men in autumn moonlight. Oh, is that a one with a double barbed hook? Listen to that. Pitiful, fearful. These poor scarecrows look like men in autumn moonlight. Wow. <laughs> that was Shiki. We stand still to hear tinkle a far temple bell. Willow leaves falling. Are you afraid to die? Are you really? The evening breezes, water lapping lightly on the heron's leg sticks. The wet kingfisher shakes his feathers in the late reflected sunlight. Oh, that's a magnificent image. Have you ever seen a kingfisher? A beautiful bird, a crested bird. A gray and white bird. And they fly low over the water and they burrow into the banks. The wet kingfisher shakes his feathers in the late reflected sunlight. Don't you miss that? I mean, don't you feel like you're missing something? Hanging around waiting for a bus on Lexington Avenue? I mean, don't you really? An unending rain. The house-pent boy is fretting with his brand new kite. That's a beautiful image again, you see. That's not about a boy and a kite. That's the eternal dream. Yes, I hear you. You are right. That's right. 
cut it out now. Oh, come on. You have said it. In unending rain, the house pent boy is fretting with his brand new kite. The calling bell, the calling bell, travels the curling mistways autumn morning. Basho, night long in the cold, that monkey sits conjecturing how to catch the moon. By the way, this is the one that that helicopter pilot remembered. He says, I never forget catching the moon. He says, I'm sitting in this miserable bucket <laughs> in a monkey suit. Night long in the cold, that monkey, that monkey sits conjecturing how to catch the moon. Listen to this dark, unending night. Once outside the paper screen, a lantern passing. They have gone, but they lit the garden lantern of their little house. Look out now. That's about death, you know, and people who have passed. Because nobody ever really goes, you know. Because nobody ever really is here. That's the secret of it all. They have gone, but they lit the garden lantern of their little house. Shiki. On one riverbank, sunbeams slanting down. But on the other, raindrops. There is fall. Busan. Supper in autumn. Flat light through an open door from a setting sun. This is painting, you know, literally painting. It's painting on your mind. September sunshine, the hovering dragonflies, shimmering shadow. September sunshine, the hovering dragonflies, shimmering shadow. Have you ever sat in a boat with a long cane pole and watched the dragonflies light along the edges of it and fall and just quiver there? Do I dare depend upon you for firm friendship, dear morning glory? Basho, that morning glory is life. Do I dare depend upon you for firm friendship, dear morning glory? A wind-blown grass hovering mid-air in vain, an autumn dragonfly. A wind-blown grass. Now the old scarecrow looks just like other people, drenching autumn rain. <laughs> Here is the dark tree, denuded now of leafage, but a million stars. Shiki again. I, I, more and more, this guy, Shiki, I think is one of the greatest of them all. Died in 1902. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.